Welcome to Heart of the Enneagram. I'm Chris Copeland. And I'm Sandra Smith. And we invite you to take a courageous and loving look at what is. The Enneagram is just a map. It's not the territory. And you have to learn how to navigate that territory with the support of a spiritual orientation, um, from my perspective, a spiritual orientation and a psychological one. You have to learn how to experientially work with and find within yourself all that material. Chris, hi there. It's good to be with you once again in elder wisdom season. That's right. Thanks, Sandra. Yeah, in season five, uh, we are uh, together to listen to some amazing folks reflect on their wisdom about life, about spirituality, about how the Enneagram intersects with all of that. Um, so I'm excited to be with you and to do this season together. Me too, Chris. Um, today, uh, speaking to us about all of that is our guest, Sandra Maitri. And Sandra, we're so happy that you're with us. So thank you for your yes and joining us. Happy to do so. And Sandra has been a Diamond Heart Approach teacher for 30 years. She leads groups in San Francisco Bay Area and in the United Kingdom and has a private practice in Marin County, California. In the early 70s, Sandra learned the Enneagram as a student of Claudio Nerano, MD, in his original SAT group in Berkeley and was in that group along with Hamid Ali, whose pen name is A.H. Almas, and he's the founder of the Diamond Approach. Sandra has studied with various Eastern and Western spiritual and psychological teachers, focusing especially on insight in Tibetan Buddhist meditation. She's the author of two books, The Spiritual Dimensions of the Enneagram, Nine Faces of the Soul, and the Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, Finding the Way Home. In her spare time, she paints and writes. I am grateful to have Sandra as one of my teachers in my current Diamond Approach work. And Sandra, I've experienced your presence and your wisdom in each session I've had with you. So thank you for that. Most welcome. <laughs> So as we begin our interview, I'm going to invite each of us, uh, our listeners, and also the three of us who are here together, um, to take a moment to become present. And one way we talk about that as we do these podcasts is, is have a curious mind as we engage this material. Can we be curious about what's coming? Have an open-heartedness and grounding our body and our presence in this moment. So as we do that, let's take a breath. Curious mind, open heart, grounded presence. Sandra, um, when uh, other Sandra, <laughs> my co-host Sandra, <laughs> uh, uh, introduced you, she, she pointed to you learning the Enneagram in the early 70s um, with Claudio Naranjo. And um, I, I'm curious to know, um, what that was like for you, and in particular as somebody who identifies as type two, how did you 
first learn about yourself? What were clues that you led with to? What was some of that experience, those early days and early experiences like for you? Um, well, I was, I think all of, I think I was 21 or 22. So, you know, you can probably do the math. It was a very long time ago. And um, being a sexual too, I was driven to work on myself as the result of one more failed relationship. And I, at the time, what was the rage here in the Bay Area was gestalt. And so I did a little gestalt work and I thought it was absolutely fabulous. And I was looking for a gestalt group. And then a friend of mine showed me this flyer from Claudio Naranjo. And he had worked with Fritz Perls at Esselin, who was, of course, the founder of Gestalt. And he was one of the big luminaries in the human potential movement here. And so he was, he was announcing, he had just come back from Chile after working with uh, Oscar Ichazo. And he was announcing a group he was starting and uh, what got my attention is that there would be gestalt process groups as part of it. <laughs> so it was a spiritual group um, doing psychological work. And it was really probably the first of its kind. Mm -hmm. I, I, of course, didn't know it at the time. I was just, you know, desperate, actually, and deeply unhappy, deeply depressed. And um, it was really quite, quite uh, life-changing, to put it mildly. It was pivotal for me in terms of my trajectory of, of my own life. Uh, I was in art school at the time and was headed for a career doing artwork. And um, as soon as I got involved with the group that Claudia started, I pretty much lost all interest in making art anymore. Hmm. And the, the he introduced the Enneagram the really the first time that I met him. Um, I met him in the backyard, his backyard, where he was doing an intro for about a dozen people. Hmm. And he brought out a flip chart and uh, he basically went over the map of the Enneagram. And as I was listening to it, I, I thought to myself, oh, dear God, please don't let me be a two. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a pretty good indication. <laughs> um, and, you know, I desperately wanted to be a four, which seemed way more glamorous. <laughs> And uh, so anyway, it was, it was, the group lasted about four years and it was totally consuming. It became the center of my life and I ended up forming a commune with um, five other people who were really at the core of the group. And it was just an amazing, amazing experience. We would stay up really late at night exploring the Enneagram and talking about our personal experiences and, you know, how the theory 
matched or didn't match our our own uh, sense of self and what we'd been through. And I would say that it was really that way that I learned the Enneagram most thoroughly by really listening to other people, hearing it, you know, in their own words and experience and, and getting the feeling for each of the types. That sounds like heaven. <laughs> well, it was at times. It was hell at times. <laughs> it was it was back in the days when uh, it was really no holds barred. You know, T groups were also really the rage back then. And in the in the group with Claudio, anything went. I mean, you could you could hurl the 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 worst insults at somebody after hearing their monologue you know their their inquiry and you know we we just we learned how to how to deal with that so it was it what could be really rough and tumble and uh and very very confrontive in mm. fact claudio would confront us he would um we we met I think it was every Thursday night uh, and then also one weekend a month. So it was very intensive. And he would call out each of us and just, you know, sort of tell, ask us to describe to the group some intimate detail of our experience that we'd communicated to him, you know, and then he would give us his perceptions right in front of all 70 people in the group. Wow. Wow. I just felt my entire body contract. <laughs> wow. What Sandra, what um what kind of hooked you? What 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 was it that just you said, "Hey, this is what I want to invest my I know you talked a little bit about kind of you, you were feeling desperate, but was there something also that grabbed you that just held you? Yeah, 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 certainly. It was really that first meeting out in his garden. He did a practice called trespasso, which is transmission. And he went around and sat in front of each of us and looked us in the eye and just really communicated the state that he was in. And he was in an amazing, amazing state. So it was, it was the first transmission I'd ever received. Hmm. And it was incredibly powerful. And, you know, after that, I was willing to pack my bags. I would do anything this man told me to do. You know, I was absolutely devoted. And of course, I was absolutely in love with him as well. Hmm. So that was a whole part of my journey sure. with him. So type two, uh, you lead with type two. Um, how would you say some of the gifts of this type have really supported your journey? Well, I think that um, the word empathy is the first word that pops to my mind. Yeah. I, I know that I'm able to relate to other people and really feel their experience. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in my work with people, that's been a huge support. 
uh, to understand the reality that another person is living mm -hmm. and to and to feel it mm -hmm. in myself yeah 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 sort of the maybe a counter to that is where has the the two have you noticed that tripping you up some or getting you a little bit in trouble in your life as you <laughs> as you reflect on it well i mean the whole the the whole identification with the personality in and of itself is a big trip up mm -hmm. so can you say more about that yeah, uh, each of the enneotypes really is a map of the ego structure or personality structure. Uh, personality is a word that came through, I think, through the Gurdjieffian tradition, which means basically the same thing as the ego structure. So I use those two words interchangeably. And so it's really a map of not what we are. Uh, of really what we are not as a soul, although the pattern certainly has shaped our consciousness. Mm -hmm. So um, from, from my perspective, whatever our enneotype is, as long as we really believe that that's what we are, we're trapped, we're not free. So that said, you know, specifically for me as a two, what's been the, the, the biggest challenge has been the tendency toward dependency on others, looking to others as being the source or the star uh, and, and not recognizing myself, but becoming... Um, becoming in the thrall really of powerful, significant, charismatic others. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's certainly been a lot of my path, you know, learning how to find myself and um, discover my own value, my own, first of all, my lovability. That was, that was a huge, huge part of my path. Because um, I, I came into the, the work on myself convinced that I was unlovable. Mm. And um, so developing the, the capacity really, or, or not so much developing, but finding love for myself mm. has been probably the central thing in my journey and also learning how to make myself center you know twos tend to be very self-centered that's the way other people experience them they're needy they they're pulling on you for stuff for attention for for whatever and um it it the the self-centeredness doesn't mean that a two is centered in him or herself in fact, quite the opposite. And what's needed is becoming centered in oneself. So in many ways, that's been my journey.
with the Enneagram, and the three of us know this, as do many, it's, it's a map. And we can learn all sorts of things about the nine types, but the learning doesn't change anything. Yes, yes. And I loved, I think it's in your first book, The Spiritual Dimensions, where you did a, a thank you to Claudio and to Hamid. And I can't remember your exact words, Samra, but Sandra, but the, the doorway that Claudio, can you, can you name that again? Thanks to Claudio for opening the door or showing yeah, you the door. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. And also I dedicated that book to Oscar, the man behind the door. Uh-huh. Right. And to Hamid, who's taught me how to walk through it. And it's that walking through it that would be then the practices. Yes. Of finding your center. Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, beautiful. I think that's really important what you're saying. And I think a lot of people in the Enneagram community lose track of that, that the Enneagram is just a map. It's not the territory. And you have to learn how to navigate that territory with the support of a spiritual orientation, um, from my perspective, a spiritual orientation and a psychological one. You have to learn how to experientially work with and find within yourself all that material. And for so many people, it just stays a head trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sandra, I wonder what practices um, that you have found supportive for you as you have experienced this, as you have come to that centeredness, spiritual practices, psychological practices, what have those been like for you? Yeah, uh, well, certainly meditation has been a big part of my journey. I intensively studied, practiced Vipassana uh, Theravada meditation when I was in my um, mid-20s, I guess late 20s. This was after the work with Claudio. And uh, I lived at a, a Buddhist meditation center in England for two years and did tons of practice. So that really supported me in learning how to disengage from my inner content, my storyline, my mind, um, all the, what Claudio called chichareo, all the noise (laughs) in the head. And um, I've also done a lot of Tibetan meditation, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, um, which are very, very important to me and have been very valuable on my journey. Um, but, but one of the things I discovered is that meditation alone doesn't help resolve the, the personality structure. It really just helps you learn how to disengage from it and discover what else is here. Uh, but for many people, it just leaves the whole ego structure totally intact, you know, so you're just kind of bypassing it, learning how to move around it mm-hmm. rather than through it. And 
that was really what uh, I've learned from Hamid, the founder of the Diamond Approach, whose who's, to me really major discovery that's the cornerstone of the Diamond Approach is that if our personality, our ego structure is an illusion, as all of the ancient spiritual teachings say, they say it has no ultimate existence and so forth, then if that's the case and it feels really real, then if we feel into it and penetrate it experientially, then we, we stand a good likelihood of being able to discover what it's made out of and move through it. And that's the whole practice of inquiry in the diamond approach. It's learning how, first of all, to really show up and get present. You know, most of us are completely consumed with what's going on outside of us or whatever inputs are coming in or the thoughts in our heads, you know, or, or whatever, but we're not turning our attention toward our bodies and our consciousness itself. And learning how to do that is really the first step. And then learning how to navigate through what we find when we really land inside of ourselves. Both of those, those are the two key factors of the diamond approach. So learning how to skillfully inquire into the content of our consciousness. Uh, is a major, major practice. I continue to be amazed that at age 21 or 22, you began this journey with mm -hmm. Claudio. You just had this, this real desire to know, to seek, it seems like. I, I, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't conscious, Sandra. Mm. It wasn't a conscious desire. It was more, I, I, I think really I was called. I think that's the truth of it. I think that um, the universe had plans for me. Uh, and I was not really on board, to be quite frank about it, until I was in my 40s. You know, and then I started to feel actually the, the spiritual drive inside of myself. But up till then, it had been more aversion and wanting to uh, get rid of my difficult patterns and my neurosis and all of that and just really wanting to be happy, which mm. I wasn't for many years. Thank you for sharing that. I love that calling. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I was thinking that the Enneagram has been such a core part of your calling and your vocation. And part of what I wonder is like, what led you to write the books that you wrote? What was sort of the process and that, that calling? Yeah, well, um, the my first book was um, actually an outgrowth of Hamid's book, Facets of Unity, mm -hmm. which I was the first editor of. Hmm. And the the editorial board when when the book was completed asked me if i would write an appendix about the nine types and i said to them this is not an appendix this is a book 
Yeah. And it was, this was during the 80s and the Enneagram was, it, I think the wave had crested a bit and it was a little bit on the downside of the popularity of the Enneagram. But what I had seen was that the Enneagram had gotten popularized for just the psychological dimension of it. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was so contrary to the purpose of it, as I had learned it from Claudio, which is as a tool for inner work, for spiritual work, a tool to move beyond our enneotypes, mm -hmm. not to dive more deeply into our psychology. So I, I just felt like, and, the, and that's really why I named my first book what I did, to, to bring back the spiritual dimension and integrate that into the understanding of the Enneagram. So that was my intent. Um, you know, and, and the second book was um, to help people use the map really to, um, to understand what transformation could look like. I'm, I'm working on one now um, about what I've seen about the biggest stumbling blocks for each of the types. Mm. So we'll see where that goes. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, I can't wait for that one, I think. <laughs> when you're when the spiritual dimensions came out i got a copy and i i read it and i got to my chapter of course and and when i look at it now there are all these question marks besides certain ideas mm -hmm. not me don't think so <laughs> and then i would go back you know six months later the next year and read it and just say oh that is true okay got it <laughs> and after about three years of going back and going back I got them, uh -huh. at, at least most of them. It was just so helpful to me. Oh, good. Yeah, good. it's a good uh, book discussion group. It's a good one to read with people, I have found. Mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. a, I did a course at Wake Forest University School of Divinity where I taught for a number of years uh, on the spirituality of the Enneagram. And we use that book, your first book. And uh, it's always so wonderful because so many students come in wanting to, as you say, delve deeper into the type, right? And sort of just help me understand this type even more. And your book really, so we start off doing a little bit of that, right? And then this book, your book really kind of is like the, the screeching sound of a needle on a record. Right? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, oh no, there's, there's something else here. You know, this is a map. This is not the territory, as you say. So I'm grateful for your, uh, mm -hmm. for that book. And it's been transformative for my students. So. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. I, I think I was a little too tough on eights in that first book. If I had it to do again, you know, I think it would have been a little less, um, the 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 horrible dictators and you know the terrible exemplars would have been a little more in the background yeah there are certainly in my teaching i have found types that get um that have those negative exemplars put out there more often than mm -hmm. others and yeah. yeah thank you for saying that Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll look forward to the revision, Sandra.
know, if you had an hour to spend with your 25-year-old self, what would you tell her, given where you are today? Oh, boy, that really that the, the resolution is turning toward myself and learning to open my heart to what's here instead of having my heart closed to what's here. That's really the main thing. The other question that comes in, it might be the same response or, or a nuanced response, but given your life's journey, you've, you've had a rich uh, life of experience, Sandra. What, what do you know now? I know true nature. I, I know, um, I, I, I mean, fortunately, that's become bedrock for me. And um, so any knowing that I have really emerges out of that connection. Um, and I think I've learned a lot about people. Um, and the, the, um, my last name, Maitri, was not my given name, of course, and it was given to me. It was actually given to me by Dane Rudyard, the astrologer. And uh, it, it means loving kindness or compassion. And when he gave me that name, he said, you're going to have to learn how to live up to that. And he was really right. He was really right. So what do I know? I know how much I don't know. <laughs> also, you know, I know that, that we as human beings are an endless mystery and that you can never fully know reality because it's always revealing different facets of itself. Mm -hmm. And we have to get comfortable with not knowing. And I think that's one of the challenges coming back to where we started with what's happening today is the uncertainty, the tremendous uncertainty. Mm -hmm. uh, we have no idea after we come out of isolation whether the things that we're used to in our lives are going to be there anymore. And that's, that's really huge, not yeah. to mention just so much other dimensions of uncertainty that are going on right now. Uh, like when, when will we be able to safely leave our homes and, um, and what's the world going to be like when we do emerge? So I think it's a matter for many people of really getting comfortable with not knowing. You know, sometimes I hear a, um, a little bit of a critique around this work um, that we all love so much. Uh, uh, that it's a kind of a privilege, right? That people have only certain kind of, who have certain kind of resources economically or intellectually or whatever can really benefit or engage uh, from this. I wonder, is that something you've thought about or have a response to? Yeah, certainly that comes up um, from time to time in the groups that I lead, questions about that and concerns about that. And I, I think it's true. I do think it's true. You know, if you, um, uh, if you're familiar at all with Maslow's work and his levels of, I can't remember what he called them, but they're, they're different levels of um, what becomes accessible to people depending on what their primary struggles 
are all about. And so I do think that inner work requires uh, a, a certain covering, as Claudio used to say, of the instincts, of our instincts. In other words, not being concerned about self-preservation, whether we're going to survive or not, uh, financially or racially or, you know, in any other way. Um, and we need to have reached some kind of social satisfaction hmm. where we feel like we're a part of some kind of community. We have a place in it. Uh, and, and as I say that, I realize that that's a lot of what the um, racially persecuted people are really crying out for, both those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then we need to have good relationships or at least satisfying relationships, good enough relationships with others where we feel seen and heard and gotten and so forth. And of course, that's another part of what the eruptions are all about today. So I, I think that and certainly when I when I watch the news and I hear about all of the tragedies happening in Syria, in Yemen, you know, in, in Afghanistan, in the people going to the market and not knowing if they're going to get blown up or not, it's a, it's, it's a very different world that we live in. Uh, and it's not the same world that everyone lives in. And so all of that being said, I think there's a place in humanity for all those different levels of struggle and of engagement. And I think that those who are called to do inner work are performing a function for the whole fabric of humanity, whether they, the fabric knows it or not, whether it's acknowledged or not but I really believe it has an effect. There's been a, a, there was a theory put out that I heard a number of years ago about the tipping point in collective consciousness. Mm. And it's actually a very small percentage. It was something like 3%. Mm. And so to me, that's really what people who are engaged in inner work are doing. You know, they're engaging in a, a level of um, of endeavor that is more and more widespread since the 60s. I think that is one positive outgrowth of the 60s, that consciousness and working on yourself, I mean, mindfulness is now a normal word, you know, you find it in the New York Times. And back in the day, Nobody except Buddhist practitioners use that kind of language, uh, much less have other people understand it. So there's been a seeping into the, the popular culture of spiritual ideals. Not that most people really dive deeply into that pursuit, because um, I think it really takes a certain kind of person to do that hmm. and a certain kind of willingness uh, or desperation, depending on which side of the coin you look that's at. Right. That's, that's right. right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you know, when we talk about um, welcoming all of who we are, um, which is that kind of inner work, once we do that, we can welcome the other as they are. Yeah. And it feels like just doing my own inner work is a form of justice making in that sense. Yes. 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 That I put up fewer barriers and fewer barriers. Yes. Yes. And I'm going to say something that might be um, politically inappropriate right now. But one of the things that inner work does is it teaches us that we are not our bodies. You know, we are not the color of our skin. We're not male or female fundamentally either, ultimately, you know, any more than we're our enneotype. Mm -hmm. We're something way beyond all of that. And we are part of the same thing as each other. And I think even biologically, that's pretty clear. First of all, we're all descended from the same ancestors. I think there was something like a, a, a group of about, maybe it was a hundred people. I can't remember what the, what the, um, the uh, anthropologists have, have postulated or, or the geneticists, but that, you know, we're all descended, every single human being from really just a few families of the original human beings. Mm -hmm. And that what separates us and what even makes our skin color different is such a minute number of chromosomes in our body mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, 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 it's really infinitesimal compared to the whole that makes us more the same, you know? So I think we can realize that directly in our experience and know it and relate to each other from there instead of just seeing the surface of ourselves and of each other. I sense in you a transparency, Sandra, that's um, just there. And I've just, uh, just in this interview, wondered if when you land in humility, whether you're a two or anyone, if transparency doesn't spring from that ground. But that's, that's my witness of you in this interview and in times before, there's a transparency in you, mm -hmm. so you're a real teacher in that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Well, I, I, Hamid was really my teacher around that. You know, one of the things that he always says is that the best protection is to be completely open. Mm -hmm and have nothing that anything can stick to. So really, transparency is the biggest defense, if you want to look at it like that. I love that. <laughs> wow. Because what we are is indestructible. Well, Sandra, thank you for this time. What a, what a gift um, to be with you and to hear your wisdom and, and to feel your um, centeredness. Um, Thank you. Most welcome. So with heartfelt gratitude, I'm Chris. And I'm Sandra. And we invite you to continue to take a courageous and loving look at what is. 
We want to thank all who've made this podcast a reality, including Wake Forest University Program for Leadership and Character for their financial and institutional support. Sally Ann Morris, who created our theme music, and Logan Greenhall, who's been a great website guru for us. Also, thanks to Eric Merle for his quality editing expertise. Special thanks to the Narrative Enneagram and our mentors, Helen Palmer and Dr. David Daniels, its founders. And of course, a big thank you to all of our guests. For more information about this podcast and how to get a copy of our book, that serves as a companion for deepening personal and spiritual growth, visit heartoftheenneagram.com. And be sure to click the subscribe link so you don't miss an episode. In the days that lie ahead, may your mind be curious, your heart courageous, and your presence compassionate.